Hi there, and welcome to the Skylight Books author reading series. If you'd like to learn more about us and our many upcoming author events, please visit skylightbooks.com, where you can browse our inventory, buy books, and join our Friends with Benefits Club. You can also follow us on Twitter, Tumblr, and Facebook. To speak to a real live bookseller like me, please call 323-660-1175. Thanks for your support, and enjoy. Um, R.O. Quant is a National uh, Endowment for the Arts Literature Fellow. Her writing is published or forthcoming in The Guardian, Vice, BuzzFeed, Time, Noon, Electric Literature, Playboy, and elsewhere. She's received awards from Yaddo McDowell, the Breadloaf Writers Conference, the Sewanee Writers Conference, OMI International, the Steinbeck Center, and the Norman Mailer Writers Colony. The Incendiaries is her debut novel. Jay Chang is the author of The Wongs vs. the World, published by Helen Mifflin. The Wongs has been named a New York Times Editor's Choice, as well as a Best Book of the Year by Amazon, BuzzFeed, Elle, and NPR. was awarded the VCU uh, Cable First Novelist Prize, and uh, the novel will be published in 12 countries and has been called A Story of Fierce Pride, Fierce Anger, and Even Fiercer Love. The Incendiaries is a fractured love story, a tale of grief, and an examination of religious extremism. It has been called God-haunted, savagely elegant, sensual, seductive, dangerous, and this is my favorite, Irresistible Company. Please help me give a warm welcome to R.O. Kwan. Hello, I'm so glad and excited to be here. Thank you for coming, um, and thank you to Skylight for hosting tonight's event, and for the vital work you do as booksellers. Writers have you to thank for so much. I'm just so grateful. And it's especially meaningful for me to be here since I grew up in the LA area in Cerritos. My family's here and it'll be the first time they've heard me read from my book. And it means a lot to me to get to be up here with Jake Chang, who's an old friend. We met nine years ago, right? I think nine years ago at a writer's conference. Ah, eight years ago. <laughs> Just eight years ago at a writer's conference in Squaw Valley. Um, and her novel is prodigious and if you haven't read it yet, you should buy it here today. So I'm going to read from The Incendiaries. It's my first novel, and it's about a Korean-American woman, Phoebe Lin, who's pulled into a radical group that turns out to be a cult with enigmatic ties to North Korea. The cult eventually bombs five US abortion clinics, healthcare clinics, in the name of faith. When several bystanders die, she disappears. So I worked on this novel for 10 years, which means I've attended a lot of parties and whatnot at which people ask what I do, and I'd say I write, I'm working on a novel, and they'd ask what it's about. So I tell them what I just said, and the most common follow-up question by far has been, um, is your novel autobiographical? Which <laughs> I found to be funny, weird, and extremely confusing. I think they're all asking if I'm a domestic terrorist. Um, a friend said I should just start saying, I'm, I'm no longer at liberty to talk about that. I never really check that out. Um, so, but the short answer is no. I haven't blown up any buildings. But there's a longer possible answer about what obsessions and losses led to the book. So I thought I'd touch on those briefly before reading a little from it. The novel does draw on my own background as a formerly zealous evangelizing Christian. Until I was 17 and stopped believing, my life plan was to become a preacher or missionary or maybe a religious recluse. I've long since left the faith behind, but often still find the loss to be as fresh as though it happened a few days ago. And I know a lot of people, including me, are justifiably sick of being asked to empathize with the ideologues and bigots who want us dead, our rights taken, our bodies claimed as theirs. But some anti-choice 
dogmatists truly do believe they're doing good, some terrorists even. Rigorously agnostic, though I am actively progressive as I strive to be, I can't quite forget the God-crazed girl I once was, the fanatic who truly did believe that life starts at conception, who, believing this, could have prioritized the rights of unborn fetuses even over those of living women. So in the incendiaries, I was drawn to bridging imaginative, imaginative chasms between rational and fanatic worldviews. I can't understand them is what people often say about faith-motivated terrorists, and I hope to give some insight into how people can bring themselves to commit violent acts in the name of God, which, in some cases, is in the name of love. In addition, I have distant family members I've never met who live or lived in North Korea and who I'll probably never meet. For a while, to try to fill that hole in knowledge, that longing, I kept reading accounts of North Korea. What little information that makes it out, though, is so incomplete. Eventually, I became interested in exploring this gap. But in writing about North Korea, I didn't want to make any claims about a place I've never been able to visit, and that so few people see. My mother once asked me to promise that I wouldn't even try visiting. Um, she believes that since I'm a soul-born Korean-American, it would be too dangerous. Instead, even as I gave a North Korean pass to the novel's cult leader, John Lil, I hoped to explore some of the vast gaps in knowledge about the country and to dwell imaginatively in that place of unknowing. The sections I'll read are told from John Lil's point of view, and they span about two years of his life. In the book, they're fragmented throughout in very short chapters, but here I've pulled some of them together. One. Once John Lil left Knoxhurst, halfway through his last term of college, he drifted until he ended up in Yenji, China. In this city, adjacent to North Korea, he began working with an activist group that smuggled Korean refugees toward asylum in Seoul. He'd found his life's work, he thought. Instead, he was kidnapped by North Korean agents, spirited across the border, and thrown into a prison camp outside of Pyongyang. In the stories he later told the group, he said the gulag brutalities were bad enough, but at least they'd been expected. What astonished him was the allegiance his fellow inmates showed toward the lunatic despot whose policies had installed them in their cells. They'd been jailed because, oh, they'd splashed a drop of tea on his newsprint portrait. A neighbor claimed to have overheard them whistling a South Korean pop song. Punished for absurdities, they still maintained that the, that the beloved sovereign, a divine being, couldn't be to blame. At first, he assumed this was lip service, the prisoners afraid to say otherwise. But then, he thought of the refugees he'd met in Yenji, how they talked of loving the god they'd fled. They attributed the regime's troubles to anyone but the sole person in charge. A month into John Neal's time in the Gulag, prison guards held an optional foot race, the prize a framed icon of the despot. In the confusion, those who fell were trampled. One child died of a broken spine. Through howls of pain, he shouted hosannas for his lord. They weren't lying, the poor fools. They believed in the man as one might believe in Jesus Christ. Some people needed leading. In or out of the gulag, they craved faith. But think if the tyrant had been as upright as his disciples trusted him to be. The heights he'd have achieved if he loved them. If, John Lyle thought, until his idea began. Two, three months into his captivity, John Lyle was shoved in the back of a truck driven from the gulag to the frozen riverbank and told to cross to China. He hesitated. A guard raised his gun, hit him with its butt. Bleeding from his temple, John Neal started walking. It was early March. 
Thin lines fissured the river's ice. Each spring, the thawed waters were said to clog with all those shot while trying to escape. The bodies preserved like fish where they'd been killed. Behind him, a guard laughed. If they didn't shoot him, they'd watch him plunge through ice and drown. He tried the next step. Spindrift lifted, fell. Inhale, exhale. His nerves stretched, a net to span the width of ice dividing him from the rest of his life. Filaments glittered, straining with his weight. China stood prismatic on the opposite side. He let out a long breath. His soul was blowing loose, but he inhaled. He pulled it back in. There was no being afraid. He walked on water with each step. The ice cracked. He held still. Try to live. Take a step again. Three. The fall he returned to Knoxhurst. John Lale established a habit of paying morning visits to the graves on Hillcock Street. The churchyard gates opened at dawn. He went in to keep his vigil. Tall lindens stood bare, stripped by the cold, but still they raised their limbs in hallelujah. He walked about, he examined memorial inscriptions, the etched once love names fading. Frost burned his feet. Winter softened into spring, and moss obelisks pointed on high. In the estival heat, he set his back against the cold stone of a tomb. He plucked a honeysuckle stalk sprouting from what had once been men. He sipped its bit of juice. In time, lying in the dirt, he too might nourish future pilgrims. If he had one petition for himself, it was this, that he be made useful. But he was learning to be patient. His plan stood intelligible to him, lucid as a vision. If asked before the gulag how a revelation might look, a heraldic blaze of light would have come to mind, the flap and gust of gale force wind, his own dazzled, indisputable rip in the fabric of the usual. Instead, he had this, a plan, his chance. He lifted his face. Through linden branches, blue lozenges flashed like prizes he could reach up to have. His personal ambitions, though, no longer signified. He was thinking of mankind. In the months to come, when his group asked about his first revelation, he'd explain it had arrived with the shock of recognition. Yes, he thought. This was it. He'd been waiting. In fact, he said to his group, I felt like this when I first heard of you. Four. Noxers, though, his group said. Of all the places he could have gone after Yenji, why had he returned here to his old college town? But John Neal saw no need to indulge such questions. He'd had his troubles, it was true. The night he first left Noxers, he'd imagined that he'd never return. I've since learned, he might have said, that nothing energizes like humiliation. It had rained his first day out of the gulag, the lines slanting like marionette strings. In each breath he inhaled, he heard the call of the dying Christ. But none of this merited saying. It would be weak to tell too much to explain. It could mislead. The Lord eludes the why. To insist is also a slight. Give me, we plead, testing him. In pursuit we misprize. Lord, increase my bewilderment, they do well to ask. Instead, he told them he had been called back to Noxers, God wanting him here. Just as he wants all of you, he said, looking in turn at his disciples' upturned faces. Five. He loved to think of heaven, he said. Think of the psalmist's plea, his love song. Whither shall I escape from thy spirit, he'd asked, knowing there's no escaping him. While they lived on earth, they might still hide beneath the flesh. But dying, they'd be given up naked to the light. That's all death is, he said. It's an unveiling. 
In time, they'd show like flares. Six. If he could, he'd admit that at times it wasn't simple. They'd pledged to fight in the service of the living God, and he'd learned to accept that faith is not a gift. It is not the object you receive intact at once by putting out a hand. Though long streamers of sunlight might fawn at his feet, faith came as the hard-won reward, battle spoils he wrested from the heaped debris. The wars to come would be a divine healing in which the pure would not be killed. Thank you. Part of, <laughs> of doing anything. But everything else is great. Congratulations! Thank you. <laughs> so excited to be here with you. Um, yeah, in part because so we met in 2010 at Squaw Valley Community of Writers, and it's been eight years, and I still think about the short story that you wrote then. Seriously, like there's an image from that story that I still think about kind of all the time, and it was about how, it was about an unexpected act of love, and I feel like that same, the same kind of, I think it was the, the quote from Lauren Roth said that you write with a savage beauty, and I feel like it's that same feeling really, you had that then, and this whole book is just full of that now, so. Congratulations. Thank you. Yeah. Um, so, were you working on this at that time? I was. I've been working, so I've been working on this book. Um, I worked on the book for 10 years, as I mentioned. I essentially worked on it between, I counted as being more or less between 27, 2007 and 2017, with some breaks in between, so it led into 2018, but I'm just like, it's 10 years. I'm not going to say it's an 11 year novel. 10 years is as far as I can go. <laughs> So tell me a little bit about the genesis of it. Was it always in this form? Was it really different when you first started? Yeah, so um, so the genesis was, I really wanted to, I wanted to write a book that would give witness in some way to my own experience of faith, to my own experience of the pain of having lost it, which was, which was, um, which was, which is very painful, as well as to the joy of, of faith when I did have it. Um, and so I wanted to portray these different, these varieties of faith because I realized over time that a lot of people know what it is to exist on one side of the spectrum mm -hmm. or the other, but a lot mm -hmm. don't. Um, and so, so that was the initial genesis. Um, then I had two years. I spent the first two years working on this novel, just uh, elaborately reworking the first. 20 pages over and over okay. and over again. Because um, yeah, I had this perfect. I had this idea. I needed the sentences to be perfect, um, which is nice, but and which is true. I do still want that, but um, I but I was doing that without knowing what the story was, who the characters were, what the hell was going on. Um, and so at the end of those two years, I threw all of that away um, and I restarted. Um, yeah. What motivated you to do that? It was. I looked at those 20 pages and I realized they were just some of the most reworked inner prose I'd ever seen. And they also, they had a flaw, they had the flaw of, um, at that point, it, the, the, one of the protagonists of the novel was, was still, like the characters essentially remained the same, the main characters, but um, at that point it was, it was a novel about a sad woman wandering around, meditating to herself upon 
the nature of an absent God. And so that was exactly as, as sexy as that sounds. Um, <laughs> and as fun to read, um, let alone as fun to write. And like, and I love meditative walking around alone novels. Like, I yeah. love Zabald. Zabald is my jam. Oh, yeah. yeah. Keisha Cole, my jam. He's uh -huh. my jam. Um, uh -huh. But that wasn't necessarily the book I think I was supposed to write this time around. And so, yeah. So how did you find this plot? Because it is a surprisingly plot-driven novel. Yeah, people have been saying that. I've been I've been surprised. I think because I didn't necessarily think of the book that way, but I think having spent ten years with uh, with it, like, like I just really know what happens in there, um, and so that's, that's that's part of it, you know. Um, but I found that it was helpful for me to externalize some of the questions I was interested in grappling with in oh. the book. Um, what do you mean? And so. Uh, and so it's, and so having this idea of a, having a cult come into the picture, mm -hmm. having the question of reproductive rights come into the picture, um, these were, it was helpful because, well, put it differently, I was volunteering very briefly, very briefly, at a Planned Parenthood, um, and it occurred to me that the question of reproductive rights is one of the ways in which differences in faith um, make themselves extremely visible in the U.S. Yeah. Um, and so that so that was a key point for me was okay. oh it was that was interesting to me um, right. yeah did that answer your question <laughs> um, okay so let's talk a little bit about your personal relationship with it so you were a true believer at one point and then you stepped away from that belief and that's the journey that one of the characters in the book goes through and um, I'm very interested in belief and how people find it and how it feels, but I'm someone who honestly has never really had any religious belief of any sort, even a tiny bit, right? So I've only ever thought about it intellectually. And hearing you, or reading your words about the loss of belief, it was so beautiful and it surprised me in so many ways. And it did occur to me that like, you really couldn't have written that without truly knowing it. You know, so I'm curious about, so you were 17 when that happened. How much has that, has that loss stayed with you all of this time? It, it has in a lot of ways. Yeah. Um, and I think, yeah, it was, it was a profound loss. When I try to explain the difference, um, because you know, at this point, most of my friends in San Francisco, which is where mm -hmm. I live, are, um, have been, have, are, have been, I don't believe in any sort of higher power. Um, and I remember I was at dinner the other day with a good friend, and she was just, she'd been in the middle of the country, she'd been um, she'd been interviewing people for a book she was working on, and she just was saying, you know, these people, she was like, the people I was talking to, they literally believed that the, that the world was made in seven days. They literally believed that, and then she was going on and on. At some point, yeah. I just raised my hand, and I was like, you know, like, I, I, you know, like, I, like I, I used to. Like, it's not, it's not that weird. Like, it's, it's <laughs> yeah. it happens, yeah. you know. Um, yeah. But, like, there is, but there's, there's such a divide, I think. Yeah. Um, and so, I think I, I think what I realized over time is that, um, because in some ways, while I was working on this book, I was listening to so much sacred music, like 16th, 17th century mass music. Um, I was reading the Bible over and over again, reading religious thinkers. Um, and in some ways, I was spending so much time with this God in whom I don't believe, um, and whom I can't believe. And I, I, I'm starting to suspect that perhaps I will never stop grieving the loss, and that, and that grief is, an, is, another, is, a, is, is, is a variation of love. 
and that quite possibly I still love this God in whom I don't believe. Um, there's a quote from Augustine that I <laughs> there's a quote from Augustine that I really love and that I think about a lot, which is um, to say that to say I love you is to say I want you to be, and I think that's that's more or less where I am. Sorry, moving. So, what was it that you? had kind of emotionally when you believed that you don't have now? Um, so when I believed, I, I quite literally believed that, as, as I'm sure any believers in the audience um, might, might, might know, um, quite literally believed that there was an all-powerful, all-seen entity who was watching over my every move, knew all my thoughts, and was going to save me from death along with, along with every person I knew, and everything was going to be fine. Um, and so I am in, I'm like constitutionally, and now I'm like I'm like an extremely anxious person. I'm a hypochondriac person. And like yeah. every day, I'm pretty convinced. Like I, I'm always like bothering my husband and saying, I think I have neck cancer. Like I literally <laughs> feel my neck. Like that's like a WebMD is my is my downfall. Um, and and but when I believed in God, that kind of anxiety didn't necessarily have to exist because I oh. believed that things could, things would work out, um, which is not something I believe anymore. I don't think things will necessarily work out. I don't think that there's any sort of reason for us to be here. Um, and so it's just a total world shift from feeling safe and overall happy to maybe feeling less safe and yeah. not so happy. <laughs> <laughs> But not so happy is, is great for being a writer, as any writer can say, right? It's good, it's good fodder. Yeah. I mean, it's all different ways of facing the world, I guess. So, one of your characters, Will, so the two characters that we didn't hear from, um, Will and Phoebe, Will is someone who has lost his belief, and Phoebe is someone who's heading towards belief. And they're in a relationship. And so, what did it feel like to write Will, I mean, I assume that his journey is kind of similar to yours. Yeah. Um, it was, it was, let's see. The thing about all my characters, all, all the main characters, so there's there sort of three main characters who take, who kind of take turns telling the story of the novel. Kind of, there's, there's a, um, there's a, there's sort of a, it's only partially, but, um, but all of them, I love all of them, and they all do what many would consider to be reprehensible things, um, possibly unforgivable things. And so that was interesting, was writing characters who, um, I, I am not a top-down writer, and so I don't go into a book thinking like, this will be the story, these will be the characters. I go into the book thinking, I have no idea what I'm doing, I'm just going, I'm just following the logic of the sentences. Yeah. And so, um, yeah, it was just a process of, following the characters, following the language, seeing what was going to happen next, and then revising that a thousand more times. <laughs> but was it strange, like, I don't was it hard to see your own journey in someone else's life, you know? That's, oh, that's such a good question. Um, no one's asked that. Um, it wasn't hard in that I, I, going back to that original impulse I had of wanting to give witness to this yeah. experience that I had. Yeah. I wanted to I wanted to get it as right as I could. I so badly wanted to convey what it was like. Um, because it, that was one of the things about losing my faith while I in Cerritos, which is where I grew up, um, it's a predominantly for those of you who don't know, it's a predominantly Asian town, it's a predominantly Asian high school, um, and predominantly Korean American at that, which is what I am. Um, and so almost everyone I knew, almost all my friends and family 
were devout believers, um, devout Christians. And so to have lost my faith while I was in high school meant that I felt desperately alone, like as alone as I've ever felt. Um, and it wasn't just that I, I couldn't find my experience reflected in the people around me, but I also couldn't find it in books, which yeah. which was which felt brutal because I mean I think as like bookish introverted teenagers, like one is used to feeling sort of misunderstood by the world around you, but but like you you find solace, you find companionship in books, and so I I, I desperately wanted to write a book for the 17 year old girl I was then to to help her feel less alone. Yeah. Well. Therese, I'm just going to read a couple of the lines that you wrote that I really kind of broke my heart about how alone Will felt. When one, at, at one point he said, it felt as though having lost the infinite, he couldn't waste what little time he had. And then later he says, he hears the church bell sing, but not to him. <laughs> it's so moving. Um, so do you feel like writing has replaced religion at all? Um, no, I think not in terms of, it doesn't give me that kind of all-encompassing solace that religion did. Um, and by and large, as, as I'm sure you know, as, as, as I'm sure the writers in the room you know, like, I mean, by and large, writing doesn't give much solace, period. <laughs> it just sort of like <laughs> it sometimes gives other people solace, right? Like, <laughs> But there are times when, um, I will say though, that said, writing at this point is possibly, possibly the greatest joy I know. Um, when it's going well, which is, the, which, is the, which is the key footnote, but when it's going well, when I'm deep in the writing, um, I forget all sense of who I am. Like I forget all sense, I, I lose all sense of an I, I lose my ego, and, I'm, and it exists in what amounts to what feels like a very pure place of just caring about the syllables, caring about the language, trying to get things right. Um, and when I'm there, I'm so happy. It's just that's not a sustainable state. And yeah. Yeah. But at least you can get there. I think that is, yeah. <laughs> Every now and then, yeah. yeah. Um, let's, let's talk about cult leaders a little bit. Uh, so what really struck me is, and I'm so glad that it was in the part that you read, but it really struck me that John Lale? John Lale, yeah. Lale? Um, that he wanted to leave because others needed someone to follow. That, you know, that he said mm -hmm. in, that, in that moment. So it seemed to me that it wasn't so much necessarily that he was like, I have a particular doctrine that I want to impose, but he saw that there were people out there who were willing to follow. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. can you tell me a little bit about how you kind of conceived of this particular cult and you know, how you decided on the parameters of it? Yeah, so um, so at some point I was doing a lot of research into cults. Like I was reading every nonfiction book I could find about cults, I was watching movies. Um, I, I did a lot of research into three areas. So it was cults, um, the history of reproductive rights in America, and terrorist groups. Great cheerful reading. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, but I, but then I stopped. Like at, at a certain point I just stopped and I tried to forget everything I learned because I so wanted this cult to be John Leal's own cult. I didn't want it to be, I didn't want it to be too intimately based on any other cult that had been out there. I wanted to arise out of, arise organically out of his own obsessions, his own his own losses, his own history. Um, what's been really interesting is, um, so the book's only been up for, what, this is day three? Goodness gracious, okay. But um, there are advanced copies that are sent out early to a lot of re readers and reviewers. Um, 
And so I've been hearing from people, from people since like January about this book, who've been reading it, and a, a, a question that often comes up is like people will say, hey, you know this cult like super reminds me of the Moonies, or like it reminds me super, like it reminds me of those people's choir, or like, and, and so, but so I think people have like brought up like 10 different cults that they're like, is it based on this cult? Yeah. And each time it's just like, no, it's, it, it, it wasn't. But I think that quite possibly, at least from my reading, um, I, I hate generalizing, but it quite possibly a lot of cults have more in common than they don't in terms of the power dynamics at play, in terms of how you, how you get people to believe in you, how you get people to follow you so blindly and so recklessly. Um, yeah. So if one were to start a cult, what would be the like? <laughs> what do you think you need? What really makes people follow? Uh, I think some, one thing that cults peddle and that cult leaders peddle is certainty. Mm-hmm. And certainty can be so seductive, I think especially to people who don't feel a lot of certainty about their lives, about the world. Um, and people have been asking, you know, cults seem particularly like people are talking more even about cults in the past year or two than they used to. Yeah. And I wonder if, I mean, I don't want to, again, I don't like generalizing, but part of what I find to be, I mean, so many things. Um, one of the 3,000 things that I object to about 45 um, is that he peddles uncertainties himself. He loves saying things with great certainty that he doesn't know, that he doesn't have any basis for. Um, but I think there are a lot of people who find this to be appealing and who find very this seductive. to be yeah, very seductive. And so yeah, if you want to be a cult leader, act very certain of yourself. Act <laughs> very sure of yourself. <laughs> that would be my number one, that'd be my number yeah. two, but I, don't, I, haven't, I haven't tried, so we'll see. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's a good tip. Um, so, not only have people been talking a lot about cults recently, I feel like people have also been talking a lot about like con artists and scammers recently. Oh, yeah. Right? And in a way, I mean, that is also kind of what a cult leader is. But I thought it was really interesting that in your book, I mean, they all, in a way, are like running different variations of cons on each other, right? Like everyone has a different kind of front. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. I actually especially loved. Um, the, one of the characters works at a restaurant and it's owned by, it's, it's an Italian restaurant, but it's owned by a guy who's not Italian. But he, I love the dialogue that you wrote for that guy. He says at one point, at one point the, the owner of the restaurant says, if anyone asks, I piss Sicilian sunlight. I shit big beautiful oranges. <laughs> and, um, I love that that happens like, while they're talking about a loss of belief, like that sense that we're all kind of peddling some kind of gospel mm-hmm. was really interesting. Is that, I don't know, do you think that's true of people? Or is that just like true of your characters? Um, I don't know that that's true. Again, I, um, I, I hesitate to make generalizations about people at large. Um, I think this is, I have, a, I have an allergy to certainty myself. I think having left a world of great certainty, yeah. I tend to be very, Suspicious of certain, I tend to be suspicious of my own certainties. Um, so much so that I'm very suspicious of. I'm even suspicious of like, if I'm right to be suspicious of certainty. You know. Um, <laughs> but but um, I think having the novel be set in college. This is part of what was interesting to me about having the characters be in college. College is such a liminal time when people are in a state of flux. A lot of people are trying to figure out who they are. Um, they might be changing who they are. They're away from. A lot, in a lot of cases, people are away from the family and friends who knew a previous version of you. Um, and so in those ways, um, I found it to be a rich way to explore the 
differences and the cracks between the, the, the stories we tell about ourselves and who we might be underneath those stories. Yeah. I feel like in a way that's what novels are, right? Mm -hmm. They're showing people like what, you know, the characters for the public facade and then their private lives. I feel like that's why so many people read is to kind of like delve into the private lives yeah. of people. Yeah, that's really yeah. beautiful. That, yeah. Um, okay, so one of your, so the, the two college-age characters, yeah. Will and Phoebe, um, Phoebe is a Korean-American woman, mm -hmm. Will is um, a white man from, I forget where he's actually from now. He's from, um, every person who knows will think this is weird or, or I, don't, I don't know what you think, but um, it's from, he's from a town called Carmenita, okay. which I named after a street in my hometown because uh, I, <laughs> I, love it. I like the word, I don't know, I like the words. So. Yeah. <laughs> so you write actually mostly from Will's perspective. Mm -hmm. Uh, was that, how did that feel? Like, did you have to, you know, there's so much talk right now about who gets to tell what stories, mm -hmm. you know, how we put ourselves in the minds of um, characters who do not have different lived experiences from us. Um, and I feel like, you know, there's a sense that white writers often feel like uh, the characters that they write are like don't need further examination, mm -hmm. like their their race doesn't need to be further examined because they just are what they are. Mm -hmm. Whereas like, you know, they think that other, you know, Asian characters, black characters, etc., that their race needs to become a, a larger issue. Did you did you what was your thinking around that? Mm -hmm. And and tell me a little bit about the decision to write from Will's voice. Yeah, so um so as I said, the, the book originally began with um, with Phoebe talking for the and I thought the whole book would be told from her point of view. Um, but something I realized at the two at the at the two year mark was that spending time with her for the entire length of the novel mm -hmm. was was very it was a very um, claustrophobic place to be. She's going through great extremes of um, she loses. I mean, I'm not giving anything away. She she loses her mother. She loses um, she loses. Uh, like her, her 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 whole idea of herself, who she thought she was going to be in terms of her professional ambitions, um, and then she joins a cult, and then again I'm not giving anything away, and then she like is t it, like, like possibly takes part in blowing up five buildings, you know, like this is like this is a lot to have happened to a person over the course of a novel, and so um, I found that just like stepping aside a little and having Will, this man who loves her, tell a lot of the story, um, freed up a lot of space for me. It freed up a lot of it gave me a lot more options in terms of how I could tell the story. Um, mm -hmm. I thought a lot about The Great Gatsby by Fitzgerald, mm -hmm. which um, is not told by a central character. It's told by Nick Carraway, who's not intricately involved in the lives of the, of the people who are going through the most drama. Um, mm -hmm. And there are other examples of books like that. that um, so that was how that happened. Um, and in terms of writing other books, I, 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 I do have... I, I, I am on the side of we can do anything mm -hmm. as writers, as fiction writers, but we better do it really, really well, especially when the stakes are, um, especially when it comes to telling the telling the stories of more marginalized people. Um, um, on the flip side, I feel as though, man, like women can write men. You know, we live in the we live in the yeah. white we live in the white patriarchy. Like I women can write. Right. Studying them. We're studying them. We're like. We're like experts on like <laughs> women can write men I think people of color can write white people like I think like I think we, we're enmeshed in a world in which 
put it differently, I didn't write, I didn't read my first um, Korean American fiction until I was out of college because there was so little, so little being published at the time, and it was so revelatory for me to come across my first Korean American writers and to see that aspect of myself on the face, uh, on the face, on, on the page. Um, because I've grown up like loving, and I still love, like I love Henry James, I love Edith Morton, like I love Tolstoy, you know, like all these people, but they all write worlds in which I just do not exist. Um, and there's something so strange about, for all your life, loving an art form in which you physically cannot exist. And, and so, um, so yeah, I think, does that answer your question? <laughs> so who were the first Korean American writers that you they were um, Chi Wei and Alexander Chi were the first two. Yeah, yeah, good one. I know. <laughs> yeah, and now there's so many more. I think that's so exciting about 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 publishing and about literary yeah. fiction these days. This summer, there's just like a bonanza of first-time Asian American writers. Like it's 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 awesome. Someone's standing there's right one right there, there. Asia. <laughs> Her first novel is the ensemble, and it's rad as hell. You should buy it too. <laughs> yeah. Um, so yeah, have you thought about sort of how different it is kind of with this book coming out now versus let's say you had managed to finish it in two years or three years. It was kind of a different world. Yeah, I mean it was, you know. I mean Obama was president. Can you believe that? Obama was president. I know, there was a time, man. There was a time that it happened. Um, but but still, a lot of the tensions and a lot of, a lot, it wasn't a, an entirely different country in any, in any, in any, um, in any way, shape, or form, um, and so people have been asking, you know, because okay, so there are like cults, there are reproductive rights, um, there are extremists, there are um, you know buildings being blown up, and people have been asking like, how did you write such a, a novel that seems to be like so reflective of the headlines right now? So yeah. I've been working on it for ten years, so like I really wasn't like really wasn't trying to like go after the headlines. But, um, but I think a lot of the questions and a lot of the conflicts um, were, were very much still in the air 10 years ago when I started this book. Um, mm. 20 years ago, I don't know, you know? I think, they're, they're, I think they're just part of what our country is and has been. Yeah. Well, you know, it's interesting. I feel like um, reading the way that you write um, John Leal's, I don't know why I have such a hard time saying his last name, uh, in words, it really reminded me of early American preachers, mm. you know, mm -hmm. um, like that old short, short story, The Devil and Daniel Webster, mm -hmm. like that um, that kind of like American fire and brimstone um, persuasiveness. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I guess like all of these push-pulls, yeah, have kind of like always been part of this country. Yeah. I mean, when did you start to realize it that like, when did you start to realize that, that what you were dealing with was like a, a larger thing, you know? Do you mean in terms of, like a larger thing in terms of the topics being explored? Yeah, or that it wasn't just sort of like things that you were struggling with in your own life? Uh, to be honest, I'm not actually sure I ever really, while writing it, in the day-to-day -day work of writing it, I'm not sure I really gave that all that much thought. Like I think I, I think I was um, writing this book in part. It took so long for a lot of reasons, um, but I think part of it is that it's, it's such a private book for me in so many ways. It's a it's a book in which I'm I'm trying as much as I can to tell the truth as much as I can, um, and I find fiction to be as as I'm sure. Um, as I'm sure a lot of people would agree, I find fiction to be the very best vehicle for me for telling the truth because I don't have to be hampered by facts. I can, 
try to access the truth that's at the core um, of experience of my experiences and yeah. of my of my yeah of my life. Um, and so yeah, I don't think that was something I was I was thinking about very much. Okay. Yeah. Um, let's talk a little bit about you write stuff. You know, it took you ten years to write this book, but you were doing lots of other things in the meantime. Um, you wrote a lot of essays. You wrote some short stories. Yeah. Um, was that important to you to kind of have other stuff out there in the world? Um, part of it was um, it it was, but I'm not sure it was helpful. Like I, yeah. um, so when I'm not in that like beautiful ego free right. place, um, yeah. like I, I, you know, I like like getting gold stars. You know, like I like just like like I, I'm Korean American again, as I keep saying, um, and like. <laughs> I don't know what it is about my people, but like we are super obsessed with with education. Like we're super obsessed with like like there's nothing better when you're a kid than to just get like straight straight A's. Tell your teachers love you. Um, that kind of affirmation just makes like just just like is like at the core of who we are. I think. Um, yeah. And so it's very hard if that's part of your temperament to mm-hmm. go years and years and years working on a thing and having people just increasingly worry about your well-being. Um, I, 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 would, I, was, I dreaded like Thanksgivings and Christmases and like every possible family reunion because I, I you know, like, it, it, these, were the, these were the stages of worry. Like at first they would ask me like brightly, you know, so how's the novel going? You know, it's been two years. Like you must be like, it must be, it must be like well on its way. And then they'd start asking with fear, you know, you can see the anxiety. Like, they're like so how, you know, like, How's it going with your novel? Like, are you are you still working on your novel? Are you still writing? Which is such a brutal question. Never ask that to the, yeah. to the people in your life who are working on long projects. Um, the worst stage was when I would leave the room. So if it was Thanksgiving dinner, when I left the room to like go, I don't know, like go, go like get more pie, they'd all lean in and ask my husband like. Yeah, how's that writing? Oh. Like, how's, how's Reese? Like, is she? <laughs> this is her family right here. <laughs> <laughs> like, is she, is she okay? <laughs> and so, um, and so, yeah, I, I did find that to be increasingly very difficult, um, as I'm yeah. sure is is difficult for for. I mean, it's it's very hard to not every now and then. And so, publishing a short story every now and then, publishing an essay every now and then, um, it let me remind myself, like, hey, you know, like. I can at least sort of do this, maybe, you know? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I asked that question because I know that, that there are a lot of people in the audience who are kind of, who are also writers, who are kind of figuring out the best way to, like, construct their own writing lives. Mm-hmm. But, I, yeah, I think it's always hard. Um, but, yeah, I'm also I'm glad that you talked about <laughs> um, what it's like being asked over and over. So I was actually going to ask you, you know, yes, also at parties. Not with family, but just with friends. Mm-hmm. When people, especially when people who aren't writers, know that you've been writing for so long, mm-hmm. that is really the worst, isn't it? Yeah, <laughs> it really is. And I live in San Francisco. I love San Francisco. There's a lot um, that's great about San Francisco, but it is kind of a one one company town. You know, like it's a tech city at this point. There's very little otherwise. Um, I mean, the literary community is great in part, I think, because we feel as though we exist on the outskirts, so we're like we're going to support one another. But um, but so I would go to like I would go to parties. My my um, my husband he works at a gaming company. He works in in um, in one of the industries that 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 fold into this. And so I would go to parties and people I met for the first time they would just say like oh so what do you do and I'd say like, you know yeah I'm a writer um, and and just like the 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 the, the kindness. The kind condescension with which I would be greeted, like I, I would feel so much 
much. Like, like I was like I was like I should just start saying I'm like a basket weaver. Like <laughs> you could have just called yourself a content creator. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and people would just say like, oh wow, yeah. So is that like J.K. Rowling? Like are you? <laughs> like it was like a, it, it was it was it was um yeah. So I don't know. I just went to fewer parties. <laughs> Were there ever any moments of doubt? So many. I think um I think I. I think I, there were very few points at which, while I was working on this, at which I was sure that it would come together in a way where I would feel good about it being in the world, and let alone like anyone else would care about having it in the world. Um, it was, it, 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 yeah. So through most of the through most of the most of that time, um, I think what kept me going was I really love language. I really love yeah. sentences. Um, I can spend all day revising two sentences over and over and over again. Um, I'm obsessed with punctuation, um, like. Like yeah, like punctuation is the shit, man. Like semicolons, colons. <laughs> there's so much you could do with them. Um, but so if I was just hanging out like at that like molecular level, just hanging out with the with the language, with the commas, with the with the, the individual letters of the alphabet, then I didn't have space to worry about my like larger purpose in life and what I was doing. I could just hang out deep in there. Um, it was when I was away from that that that, that the doubt was going to creep all the way back in. So the words themselves. Yeah. Going. yeah. Um, so I was thinking maybe we could start to open it up to questions. I feel like there's so many people here who have known you at various phases in your life that there are probably a lot of questions, though I also still have more. But anybody? Questions for R.O. Kwan? Actually, that's one of my questions. What, how did you decide on the initials instead of? Yeah, uh, it's, a, it's, it's, it's a little complicated. It's because, um, so I go by Reese generally. Um, anyone who knows me calls me Reese. Um, but that's a nickname. Um, and, my, and my legal name is Teresa, which, um, which I never use except, you know, except for legal purposes. Um, and I think I in part don't like it because it's such a it's such a deeply Catholic name, and so I think part of losing my faith at that, around that time was when I wanted a, a different sort of like self, and yeah. so Reese is a nickname. So I didn't want to publish under this random ass nickname that I picked when I was seventeen, you know, or like that my friends found for me. Um, and then Ogyong, I would love have loved to publish under my middle name Ogyong, which is my Korean name. But Ogyong is very hard to pronounce for non-Koreans. Um, it's essentially impossible um, for most people. Okay. And so, um, and so I was just imagining like hearing my name be mispronounced over and over again, uh, yeah. and like how good that would feel. Yeah. So, so I just went, I just went, I just thought I'd get simple. Oh. Yeah. Yeah. Good initials. Alright, Any questions? One writer friend was saying, "Yeah, I, I want. I really want to get this Korean American woman. She's super rad. She's an um, she's an actor. I want her to. I want to get her to do my audiobook because I think she'd be perfect at it." And then we, um, and then we, and then she was like, "Yeah, her name's Julia Cho." And I was just like, "What are the chances that like is she by any chance like is she is she my age? Is she am I?" And then we realized that this was the same Julia Cho, and so I got her email address and reconnected with her. It's, um, yeah, it's, so hi Julia. <laughs> 
Um, I think a key moment for me, so I always love to read. Um, I, I think I was definitely a reader first, um, and that just sort of segued into wanting to write. Um, a key moment for me was, I remember when I first read um, Keats um, and his Grecian Urn poem, um, which I love, which I love so desperately. Um, and the first time I read it, I just thought, like, it was just, this is like in high school or maybe late junior high. Um, I read it, and the first time I just thought, okay, you know, like another poem that barely makes sense, whatever. But then I read it out loud to myself for some reason, and we're just being like staggered by how beautiful it was and how how final the syllables felt, how much it felt as though the poem could not have been any other way. Um, and I think from that, I think that was a key moment in realizing like what sound can do and what and what that sort of attention to to syllables and to punctuation can do. Um, I love. Susan Sontag talks about lexical inevitability, um, the idea that you can perhaps strive toward language that feels as though it couldn't have been any other way. Um, and she talks about this in the language of poets, um, but I, and it's harder with prose if only because it's so much longer um, and we're, we're supposed to make um, more immediate sense, I guess. But, but I, I do, I think that's what I'm always striving toward with my, with my writing is I want every sentence to achieve that lexical inevitability. I want every sentence to feel as though it couldn't possibly have been any any other way. And I, I almost believe, though I don't actually believe, I almost believe that the book exists out there and I'm finding my way toward it. Um, and I act as though that's the case, even though I don't quite believe it. But So the book only felt finished for me, or as close to finished as I could get it, um, when I could open the book at random look at a line and not want to tear everything all apart, all over again, and yeah, so yeah, 10 years, you know. <laughs> do you read it out loud as you're working on it? I did, to, I do. I did it a lot, especially toward the end. I recorded yeah. myself multiple times. Um, the entire manuscript? With the entire book, which is not fun. Wow, that's a lot. Okay. <laughs> I, awesome. I did, yeah, because yeah. I found that that was a really useful way to defamiliarize a text for myself and to, mm -hmm. and to just like a different way entirely of looking at it. Because I find that even changing the font drastically changes um, the words on the oh, page for me. Yeah. yeah like, I write in a 10-point font because it's kind of small, like it, it doesn't let me, but the minute I enlarge it to a 12-point font, like I see all these errors and like all, all these problems that weren't yeah. there before. Um, I just had an interview with um, with the Chicago Review of Books and it said so much about Garamond that they titled the piece, R.O. Kwan does not trust Garamond and neither should you. <laughs> <laughs> and um, so Garamond, for those of you who know Garamond. Okay, Garamond is, is like the classically elegant, beautiful font, right? Yeah. Like you look at it and you're like, man, this is some lovely, lovely, yeah, lovely, yeah. lovely visually. Yeah, um, so I don't trust it because it hides the flaws. You write a sentence in Garamond and you're like, damn, that's a good sentence. When you turn it around to Times New Roman, it's no longer a good sentence. It's just a sentence. And so I like Times New Roman because it's a little ugly and it's a little, it doesn't, it doesn't trick me into believing that something is. You're just holding a comic sale, then you're all. That's too much. I don't have the fortitude for that. Any other questions? Yes. Um, you have mentioned that 10 years is a long time to write. Um, did you change over the course of that 10 years and did that affect the writing and the story in any way? Yeah, I was, I, did everyone hear that? Oh. 10 years is a long time, did you change over the course of that time and did it affect the story? Um, I, I mean, I, I certainly did and I was, I was very worried about that year after year as the years piled up. That I was worried about how much I was changing, not just as a person, but in my own preferences, um, my own preferences about language, and my own preferences about what I wanted a book to be. Um, but I found that 
I didn't really have to worry too much about it, or I, or I found that like the book kept keeping up with me, or maybe to put it differently, maybe I kept making the book keep up with me, or I was keeping up the book, or I don't know, there was some, some somebody was keeping up with somebody, and so <laughs> it didn't, I, I think it's not something I'd worry too much about um, the next time around, which, I've been working on my next book for two novels, and I mean two years already, um, and I, like, I, I just like, really wanted to take like a, like a super chill, like six years, and I like, <laughs> like that chill, <laughs> but we'll see, we'll see. marks for the dialogue. Um, I just, um, I, it'll say like, he said XYZ, like, like comma XYZ, but there won't be quotation marks. Um, and I don't really, I don't have anything against quotation marks per se, and I've, and I've written fiction that uses quotation marks. What I find to be true about, at least for myself when I'm reading um, about, about punctuation marks is they're very shouty, like they really call attention to what's in there. Um, and I think I, and I didn't want the text to have these shouting moments. I wanted it to be more flow and less shout. And so that was why I kept putting quotation marks in, taking them out, putting them in, taking them out. And I and I ended up pretty strongly on the side of no quotation marks. We'll see if, if this continues. I actually really love what the French do. Like with their, um, oh. is that like big dash in the, oh, yeah. Yeah. it's so beautiful. Yeah, it is. It seems so like, cooler. It's just like there, it, it, yeah. it's like, it, it, but it's only on one side. It's yeah. not bracketing both sides. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I've been wondering if I should just Maybe go sure. French. Why not? <laughs> Was it always uh, first person? Um, it oh, was mostly first person. It's mostly first person. It was pretty much, um, although I, I I switched it back to third and back to first. I don't even know how many times. Um, and this point, it's a running joke in my household, and that like my husband will come home and I'll just be like, you know, I had this gigantic revelation. Like I understand so much about this book. I had this big change, and he like he's just like. You, you, you switch to third person again. Like that's, that's a big change right now. And, and so I do that over and over again. But I find that I really like first person. Um, I like that it feels so much more because it feels as though there's somebody. It could be somebody talking to you in some in some way or another. Um, I find that third person is so much harder for me because I'm always just wondering like who is doing the talking here? Like what what is the reason behind the story being told? Um, and clearly, like lots of people use third person in very powerful ways. But for me, it's just. I find it to be a less natural way of, work, of writing. Well, that's interesting. Phoebe's first person is told from Will's perspective. Kind yeah. Of, and it's later revealed, yeah. like, how that happens. But how did you hit on that? I wanted the book to have a reason for existing, even within the confines of the world of the book. Oh. And so, in a lot of ways, um, one, what, a lot of ways, the book is Will telling the story to himself and trying to understand what happened and trying to explain um, what happened to himself and the woman he loved. And um, and so, I wanted, I want, I didn't want to go outside the confines of what Will can either know or imagine about the other characters. Um, and so, that created a sort of natural, natural limit to, to the text. Um, any questions? Yes. I was wondering what, what are your feelings towards Korean as a language and do you find yourself sometimes with a bit of English and Korean? Okay, um, so 
My Korean is um, so I moved to I moved to the U.S. when I was three, and so my Korean is just like it's it, it's functional, you know. Like my, my, I can get by with my parents, and, and with my grandmother, and with my I can get by, but um, I and I can read it, but very painstakingly. So it's not it's like my like, I, I speak other languages, and I would say that in terms of like reading fluency, it's like my fourth language, and so it's not a language in which I could ever consider writing. Um, that said, I do find I wish it were much better, um, and I think increasingly because there there's so little Korean fiction that or Korean literature that's translated, um, increasingly I really want to be able to read it in the original, and so I think that's something I want to I want to do more of in the future, which would which my parents would find to be hilarious given the fits I threw when I was a child about going to Korean school and Saturday school and language school and how much I hated it. But, yeah, same. <laughs> Only we've been better students than <laughs> Such a waste, such a waste. Yeah. All those Saturdays. Yeah. Not Seriously. Um, any other questions? Yes. So speaking as someone who grew up in Cerritos and went to Clean High School, um, were you? can you talk a little bit about the, the idea of being a woman writer, being um, a, a woman growing up in a culture where we're expected to go into certain professions, especially going to certain, you know, very aggressively academic high schools. How did that impact your process, right? To become a writer as opposed to a lawyer or a doctor or an accountant or open your own business, the way that so many cultures now seem to be um, moving their kids in that direction towards something that's marketable? Yeah, um, so there, I have, well, I was absurdly lucky in this sense, in that my parents, I mean, they really wanted me to get good grades and go to good school, this was important to them, but other than that, they were like the chillest possible, they were just like, in terms of like what I want, would do with my life, they were like, we just want you to be happy, you know, like do whatever you want, like, you can be an artist, you can be a writer, you can you can do what you want. Um, and so I think I freaked out with that, with that amount of freedom. And in college, I became an econ major. Um, I, I took all these like econometrics and finance classes. I hated every single inch of it. But I thought that, I did think I had to like, I did think I wanted to, I, I did think it, it, it was important to grow up to have a life in which like one could have, you know, like health insurance, you know, like just like, really minor things like that. Um, but I think it, it I think, and then, and then soon after college, I did go to grad school um, because I realized that's miserable without writing. And I was taking writing classes throughout college. Um, yeah, so I think I, I, I think I didn't quite have that particular. I, di I didn't have parents pushing me to to be a lawyer or anything. Um, it was actually I remember I, I was working at this consulting firm right after college, um, and like four months in, I was so miserable. Um, I, I was just like, acutely miserable. And I remember I was standing in a grocery store complaining to my mother about how much I hated my life. Um, and she was just like, why don't you go to grad school? Why don't you keep writing? You love writing. And I, and I remember like, like I was staring at some like soup cans. And I remember like the soup cans like took on more color all of a sudden. Like hope and life in the world again. Um, yeah. Wait, and then so tell us a little bit about that journey. So then you applied for an MFA and went to... Yeah, so that was um, that was like in January or January February of a year, um, and so for MFA applications, there almost all of them were already the deadlines had passed. But okay. I, there was this one book on college. I was living in New York at the time that, um, and there was a professor there, Michael Cunningham, whose work I was obsessed with. Um, and so I thought, well, what the hell? Like I'll just apply to this one school um, and see what happens. And okay. then so yeah, and then so I ended up going to that school. And, it was, and how was that experience? It was, you know, in so many ways, um, one of my one of my Brooklyn college friends is here. Um, but it was, in a lot of ways, 
uh, it was so wonderful. I mean, I wasn't taking any goddamn like econ classes or what yeah. it was. I was, study, I was just studying writing. I was just studying. Um, I was just studying books, and so that was that was great. Um, I also had, I think, like I had better naturally lovely professors. There wasn't. It wasn't. Yeah, you hear a lot about MFA programs being incredibly competitive, about being about there being a lot of backstabbing, and they, they somehow did manage to create um, what felt like a very like it felt like a community. It felt like we were supporting one another. Um, I'm not saying it was perfect; like there were certainly sure. problems, but um, but I think I was lucky in my in my grad school experience. Like I just loved it, and yeah, I was spending so much of my time just thinking about books and words. It was so great. And is most of your writing community from your MFA program, or is it people that you've met since going to San Francisco? Or um, it's a it's a giant mix. Um, I think I, I've met a lot of people at writing conferences, like you. Um, so the writing conferences, and I do have a really wonderful um, writer writing group in San Francisco and in, in the Bay Area. The Bay Area, really, the literary community is like is like very supportive in a lot of ways, and so it's from all over the place. Also, the internet. I mean, I spend way too much time on yeah. on um, on social media, um, and in some ways, I. I I deeply wish I were out of my life, but in other ways, um, I have so many friendships that have been maintained and/or started online um, that I don't think would have been possible without 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 the hours and hours I put into Twitter. <laughs> <laughs> so, if people are kind of looking for a writing community, what would you suggest? Hmm, that's a really good question. Go to bookstores. Go to readings. Um, at least, in, I mean, I, I'm sure it's true here in the Bay Area. If I go to a bookstore for a reading, I'm almost guaranteed to run into at least one friend, um, several, mm -hmm. if not several, if not ten. Um, and it's also where I've where I've made a lot of my readily friends um, and literary friends and bookseller friends in the Bay Area is by going to bookstore readings. Um, I, I really was, like, before these past few months, I really was kind of a recluse. I didn't go out very much. I had a rule that um, that I could only, on weekdays, I could only go out for a social thing, like, one time. Like, one one weekday, and the rest of the time I would not go out, which makes me really fun as a, as a partner, as you can imagine. Um, but I spent a great deal of that of the, of that limited amount of social time at bookstores, like, going to readings and, yeah. Any other questions? Anyone? Yeah. So I have one. Uh, so you know, since you're writing about such like heavy issues like terrorism and the, you know abortion clinic, did you ever worry that uh, you know that your sort of intent would be misunderstood? That some people might think you're being sort of overly sympathetic or something like that in sort of the the subject matter that you're writing about? Did you ever have to worry about that? Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, I haven't worried too much about it yet. Um, or rather, let me put it differently. I have so much I worry about that that's not one of the, that's not one of the, like, <laughs> top most worries. Um, I, like, I'm, like, super worried there's a typo in there that I don't know about. Like, that's, like, that's, like, that's, like, weighing on me every day. Um, I'm <laughs> super worried that I've, like, left someone out of the acknowledgments who was key, who was, like, who was, like, my mentor and somehow I just blanked and, like, left her off. Um, I'm, I'm worried about so many things. That said, um, because it feels like such a private book, because it feels like a book that in some ways I wrote so much for myself um, and for this 17-year-old version of myself, um, I think I was so much less worried about, at least while I was writing about what an audience would think. Um, also, there is, of course, the shield of its being fiction. Um, like, it's fiction, you know, I made it all up. It's not real. Character, is that me? I think we have time for one last question, if anybody. Has one. No? Alright. 
In that case, um, Ruth, thank you so much. Congratulations. You've been listening to the Skylight Books author reading series. Don't forget, you can listen to this and all of our other great podcasts at skylightbooks.com. Thanks again for stopping by, and we hope to see you soon.